Hello and thanks for clicking. In case you've stumbled upon this podcast and wondered what you've let yourself in for, allow me to sketch things out a little. Introductions first. My name is Ancient Blogger, or well, my Twitter is at Ancient Blogger and my website is ancientblogger.com, so it's probably easier to stick with that. You're listening to my third podcast, though I recently guested on Condensed Histories, which is a cracking podcast and certainly worth subscribing to, though just make sure you listen to the one that I'm on. Moving away from such hubris, I'll explain what you'll be listening to. I'll be discussing two separate topics, how the Romans declared war and the use of the elephant in a military capacity in antiquity. In the case of the latter, it'll specifically be about how the use was imported into the central Mediterranean. All dates are given are BC, by the way. And I've also managed to link the two topics. Well, almost. You you can uh, be the best judge. The collective noun for elephants, apparently, is either a herd or a memory. So expect a memory of tangents as Arnold Schwarzenegger, Divine Chickens and Superstitious Spartans all get a name check. It's a style or approach I like to call tumbling down the stairs of antiquity and I hope you enjoy it. So let's get started. Rome was quite a belligerent state, yet it was also highly religious. Therefore war was about making sure the gods were on your side. Defeats might be considered as a result of an angry god, or simply one which was in a bit of a strop with you. If you've ever read the Iliad or Odyssey, you'll have noted the deity seemingly acting in a way which anticipated very bad soap opera storylines or daytime TV series. In the wars with Carthage, Rome became so desperate at one point that it undertook a ritual involving human sacrifice just to win back the favour with the gods. I should add, though, that this was a response of the state. The idea that every single Roman or Greek or person in antiquity being highly religious isn't really a sound one. Tim Whitmarsh has recently written a really good book about atheism in in antiquity, and ironically I got it at Christmas. Definitely worth reading. The Romans declared war via a somewhat bizarre ceremony or ritual which went something like this. The Roman envoy visits the border of the tribe with whom Rome wishes to make war. He's dressed for the occasion and wears a woolen band upon his head, as you do. He then cries out, Hear me, Jupiter, hear me, boundaries, and names the tribes or peoples involved. He continues, Hear me, righteousness, I am the official spokesman of the Roman people. I come as their envoy, just and pious, and may faith attest my words. The envoy then makes his demands, before continuing with, If I demand unjustly and piously that those responsible, and that the stolen property be handed over to me, then may you never allow me to see my native land again. That's dramatic. But this was repeated when he went across the boundary, when he met the first person, and when he walked through the gates, and finally when he arrived in the marketplace. The envoy didn't get a response after 33 days, then war would be declared by the envoy before wandering back to Rome to make the necessary arrangements. This is reported to us by good old Livy, and he cites it as a borrowed custom. In the early days of Rome, it was scrapping with neighbouring tribes and dealing with cattle rustling or stolen property. So perhaps this was a bit more fitting. I'm not so sure that it would have worked in the imperial period, though perhaps they still used it. The Romans had one other custom of note. In the forum stood the Temple of Janus. If the doors of the temple were open, it meant Rome was at war. And as you can imagine, the doors were pretty much open all of the time. They did close briefly, though, following the First Punic War, which we'll come to later, and then after the deaths of Antony and Cleopatra. They were closed a few times during the imperial period with much fanfare. Whereas today we have politicians and celebrities turning up to open something, usually with a large pair of scissors, the Romans celebrated closing something which says a lot about them, really. But it wasn't just the Romans who wanted to get the gods on their side when preparing for a war. Similar situation could be seen when we look at the Spartans. I imagine that many of you have seen or are aware of the film The 300, and in it the Spartans are men seemingly hewn from the pages of any men's sports magazine and possibly a few niche ones from the top shelf. You've got a problem with Persia? 
call the Spartans in and they'll sort it, usually with a Bond-style quip and an act of violence. There is obviously a fair bit of truth here, but it's worth noting how superstitious or dutifully religious the Spartans were. If you have read Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, you've probably read a bit or come across something where the Spartans are about to do something and then there's an earthquake or an omen and they trundle back home. In between ab crunches, of course. Let's not forget that they missed the Battle of Marathon because of a religious festival. In arguably the biggest scrap of the 5th century, the Spartans faced off with their fellow Greeks against the Persians at Plataea in 479 BC, shortly after their defeat at Thermopylae, which most people have accounted in the film The 300, and oh, we'll get to that in a bit. The Spartans fielded around 10,000 troops, the largest force they'd ever assemble. But even then they couldn't engage with the Persians until the priests said the omens were good. There they were being attacked by Persian archers and light infantry losing men left, right and centre but they were all waiting because an old chap was looking at a sacrifice and making sure it was okay. Of course, he eventually gave the all clear. This was Spartan 101. Always wait until a priest says it's okay. The superstitious and devouted nature of the Spartan culture was somewhat refrained from being in the film The 300, much like a lot of other stuff, which I won't go into right now. And I've got mixed feelings to this film, as many seem to think it was historically accurate. Now, I'm not trying to be one of those chaps who sneers because the buckle on a piece of kit is incorrect, but it is worth understanding that the film The 300 is based on a graphic novel, a very good one. Frank Miller, who created it, based his graphic novel on the 1962 film The 300 Spartans, which he saw as a boy and absolutely loved. Now, I'm not trying to score cheap points here, but it was a film for an audience who wanted to have some fun. The whole sword and sandals thing at the time was very, very big. Ben-Hur had been made a few years earlier, and Antony and Cleopatra came out a year afterwards, but it wasn't a historical documentary. This period, or anything BC, was proving very popular elsewhere. The Italian film industry was churning out similar films, which often focused on the strongman lead. So, question for you. Are you suffering from superhero film fatigue? Well, between 1957 and 1965, 19 Hercules films were made, and these starred bodybuilders such as Steve Reeves and Reg Park. The latter of these was a mentor to a young chap by the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Apparently, Reg got his mentee into the film business. In 1969, Hercules in New York was released and filtered a young Arnie, albeit credited as Arnold Strong. The producers didn't think Schwarzenegger would catch on. It's hilariously awful, so watch it. The scene involving a bear fight in Central Park is worth the popcorn by itself. Now, if you think Arnie's physique is impressive, it's nothing compared to the mental gymnastics I'm going to go through, trying to go back to where I started. Right, we had looked at the importance Rome and other societies placed on getting the right omens. The question, therefore, how do I get from pious observation to elephants? Well, I can rely on Pliny the Elder to dig me out, and by virtue of one of his many observations on the elephant. Pliny wrote that the elephant had something about it which extended into the religious. In Book 8 of his Natural History, he affords the average Dumbo a plethora of positive attributes. He comments, It is sensitive to the pleasures of love and glory, and, to a degree that is rare among even men, possesses notions of honesty, prudence, and equity. It has a religious respect for the stars and a veneration for the sun and the moon. Pliny wasn't the only one to feel an admiration for the animal. Cicero wrote of great sadness in the crowd when elephants fought in the arena. Dio, also writing about elephants in the arena, painted a harrowing scene. He commented that they raised their trunks towards heaven and cried out to be avenged. This is the sort of language used to describe a human defeat or one where they're being wronged in the process of it. It really places the elephant on a spiritual level far closer to man than any other animal I can think of. I hope you're still with me because now we start on the elephant in warfare. 
When do you think elephants started? If you are thinking about Hannibal, well, you're right, but you're you're not really that accurate. We'll see by the time Hannibal crosses the Alps, the elephant is really well, it's a bit of a dinosaur, but it's well used to it, the central Mediterranean battlefield. It actually all starts a century or so before and features two generals, one you have heard about and one you may not have done. The first one you have heard, I imagine you would have heard, is Alexander the Great. And the one you haven't heard about is Pyrrhus, who is equally fascinating, but deal with good old Alex first. As you may know, Alexander invaded the Persian Empire, which, to put it simply, was huge. One thing it had access to was the Asian elephant, and in case you hadn't realised, there are different species of elephant, and the Asian one is around 9 feet of the shoulder, that's 2.7 metres, and weighs in up to 3,000 kilograms. Normal speed is 5 miles an hour, but ramming speed is a terrifying 24 miles an hour. But what about fuel efficiency, you might say, in the manner of a four-court dealer? This is the first of the numerous drawbacks with an elephant. They eat a lot. You're looking at 100 to 108 kilograms of food a day, and that doesn't include buns or peanuts that have been comically stolen out of pockets. Alexander the Great first came across the Asian elephant at the Battle of Gorgamala in 331 BC. Alexander won, and Darius, the Persian king, was finally defeated. Elephant-wise, we hear very little other than they were there. They did nothing, which is quite weird, given that a key feature of the elephant, they terrify horses, would have really countered or possibly countered Alexander's cavalry strikes, which is generally what he tried to employ. Five years later, Alexander faced up against the elephant, and things got very intimate. It was the Battle of Hydaspes in modern-day northern India. His opponent this time was King Porus, who used his elephants to great effect early on. The thing about Macedonian infantry is that they were very tightly packed, which meant that an elephant crashing into them was quite devastating. The bad news for the elephants was that the Macedonian infantry were largely spearmen, and they were equipped with a sarissa, and this is a spear 13 to 21 feet in length. The elephants soon decided this wasn't for them, Alexander's light infantry were able to pepper them with javelins. The elephants then demonstrated their second big drawback, panic. Panic wasn't something unique to elephants in battle. Ares, the Greek war god, had rout and panic as his two sons who accompanied onto the battlefield. In tightly packed formations such as the Greek phalanx, where keeping formation was key, one deserter might lead to several and a drip becomes a torrent. In this scenario, a phalanx would soon crumble, leading to an inevitable defeat panicky elephant presented a very different problem, and a far more squishy one at that. Rather than sneak off the battlefield, the elephants would stampede on their own troops, leading to mass casualties and confusion. All of this while the enemy was still attacking you. The effect of the stampeding elephants at Hydaspes had this same effect, and Alexander won the day. The death of Alexander in 323 left a massive gap, which was duly filled by rival claimants, mostly ex-generals of his, who decided that they all wanted to be the next big thing. Their fallout, and the wars between them, is known as the wars of the successors or the diadochi one of these generals was antigonus or antigonus the one-eyed and i'll i'll let you guess why he ruled what was now modern day turkey or a large part of it it is important you remember this chap say his name in your head and think of monocles because i need to dash back across the mediterranean for a bit but we will be back with him now remember early on when i mentioned the two generals I started with Alexander and said there was an equally interesting chap called Pyrrhus. Well, this is where he comes in. Pyrrhus is one of those historical figures who absolutely demands a film being made about him. Plutarch's history of him mentions that his upper jaw was one continuous bone with depressions as teeth. He also had a divine big toe because it survived his cremation. In the great tradition of gossips, Plutarch dismisses both of these facts as bizarre and untrustworthy, but is happy to include them. Pyrrhus came from a family who ruled Epirus, which is modern-day Albania, northwest Greece. But he didn't stay there long before being kicked out. And as a young teenager, perhaps even more conscious than a normal one due to his weird big mouth, Pyrrhus regained power before being kicked out again. Taking the hint, he decided that ruling wasn't his forte, and joined up with his brother-in-law Demetrius, who was the son of, you guessed it, 
Antigonus with the one eye. Antigonus had been quarrelling with the other successors of Alexander for some time, and in 301 faced a few of them in the Battle of Ipsus, which took place in modern-day Turkey. Needless to say, Demetrius was there fighting for daddy, and Pyrrhus saw action too. In reality, Pyrrhus was only about about the only one to save face. Antigonus lost and died in the fight. Demetrius, well, he didn't exactly cover himself in glory and it was due to the elephants. Both armies used elephants. It wasn't as if either had the upper hand. At the beginning of the battle, both armies set up in standard formation, that is, with the infantry in the centre and cavalry on either flank. Demetrius was in charge of the cavalry on the right flank, which is traditionally the stronger cavalry and a position of honour. After beating the enemy cavalry on his side, he chased them off the battlefield. There was now a chance to win the battle. All he had to do was charge into the rear of the enemy infantry and win the day. Except elephants belonging to the enemy suddenly appeared and blocked his way. Perhaps suddenly is the wrong word to use here. I'm unsure elephants have ever really done anything suddenly. We don't know if these were elephants held in reserve or a brilliant bit of thinking. But with the horses scared of the elephants, Demetrius couldn't deliver that charge. Ironically, the flank which Demetrius had been on and had left due to chasing off the other cavalry was now itself exposed, and the enemy moved their mounted archers round and peppered Antigonus's men, who had no defence against this raging attack. As mentioned, Antigonus died. Demetrius and Pyrrhus scarpered, but I think the use of elephants had really made an impression on Pyrrhus. Roll forward 20 or so years, Pyrrhus had made a name for himself as a general for hire, and the town of Tarentum was having issues with an increasingly boisterous neighbour to the north. Rome was asserting itself in the Italian peninsula with a alarming effect, and Tarentum was a Greek city. Remember that the southern Italy at this time was largely Greek colonies. Now, if, you can imagine, if you can picture the boot of Italy, Tarentum is at right at the bottom, in, in the arch of the boot as it were. Pyrrhus was available for hire and took the call, arriving in southern Italy with 20 elephants, thus becoming the general who introduced the animal in a war context to the central Mediterranean. In 280, Pyrrhus fought Rome at Heraclea. Don't worry, no more topography or detailed battle explanation here. Pyrrhus won decisively, and the elephants made a difference, scaring the Roman cavalry off and causing the infantry to panic. If you've had the pleasure of watching any of my vlogs on Roman kit, plug plug, you'll know that I often mention Roman ingenuity, often in the context of taking an idea from elsewhere and modifying it. The following year, the two forces met again in the Battle of Asculum, and the Romans deployed anti-elephant devices, but not ones I can think of as being borrowed from anywhere else. This looks like something that was uniquely Roman. Just to give some context, the first day's fighting had seen no real outcome, so Pyrrhus looked to his elephants again. But what was this facing them? Uh -huh. I'll let Dionysus of Halicarnassus describe them, or me reading him. Wagons with upright beams, which had poles which could be swung around. At the end of the poles were tridents or grapnels, which had been daubed in pitch and set alight when the elephants came near. These were pulled into place by oxen, so they must have been quite big, and the Romans had really committed to the idea. 300 or so were used. Now I'm going to shock you. These actually worked. The elephants weren't really cheery about pointy flamey things on wheels, which is not really that surprising. The Romans therefore seem to have invented the first anti-elephant weapon. The only slight design failure that was these, let's call them vehicles rather than devices, these vehicles may have been anti-elephant, but weren't anti-anything else. Pyrrhus simply sent in his life infantry, which made easy work of the staff and soldiers manning them. And the elephants were then free to charge and made very, very short work of the Roman infantry. And I think short is a very good word here. Roman infantry was mainly sword-based. These weren't the highly experienced troops of Alexander with very long pikes. These were farmers, traders of the sort, armed with relatively short swords. Though he won, Pyrrhus lost a lot of seasoned troops, and this led to the anecdote where he says something along the lines of, any more victories like this and I'll be ruined, which is where we get the term 
Pyrrhic victory. Pyrrhus had itchy feet and was soon in Sicily fighting for the Greek cities there. But he wasn't fighting Rome this time, no. This time he was fighting Carthage. I imagine most people associate the elephant with Carthage and Hannibal. Well, this is where it starts. This is where Carthage first really got exposure to the elephant in a military capacity. I won't go into detail about Sicily and Pyrrhus. In short, he was invited as liberator, did his thing and then was kicked out as a deposed dictator. There's nothing new there. He returned to mainland Greece, and around 272 was involved in the siege of Argos. Pyrrhus decided to sneak in, which was often the tactic. Besieging a city was very troublesome in terms of logistics and technicalities. You need siege equipment, and those who know how to build and operate it. Also, the nature of Greek cities meant there was always one political group there who were a bit annoyed about something, and you could often ask them to let you get in if they could leave the back doors if it were open, or just incite something, edit a ruse to help you get in. And this was the case. But the problem was, Pyrrhus tried to sneak his elephants in. And the first problem he had was the elephants he used were Asiatic, and therefore they often had howders or towers on them. And the city gates were too low, so he had to stop mid-sneak and take these off the elephants. And, uh, yeah. They were soon spotted and a full battle ensued. Fighting the streets was very dangerous for, a, for an attacker. A common tactic for, was for the residents to climb onto roofs and high points in the city and throw objects down. Apparently one elderly resident saw her son being attacked and launched a tile at her son's opponent. It was a brilliant shot. The soldier dropped dead or unconscious. This was actually Pyrrhus. The defenders recognised him. And if he wasn't already dead and if he was just unconscious, he definitely was very dead because they chopped his head off. Thus, Pyrrhus met his end. You still with me? Excellent. It's around 260 now. Sicily will again be the focal point for some fighting, but not with Pyrrhus, though. He's, he's dead. We do have some final words from him. As he sailed away from Sicily, he is reported to have said, What a wrestling ground we are leaving for the Romans and the Carthaginians. He was right. In 264, Rome became entangled in Sicily. A group of mercenaries called the Mamertimes took over Messana. Fearing retaliation from Syracuse, which is a major player on the island, they appealed to both Rome and Carthage, and Rome intervened and sent a force. Now, you can argue that Rome and Carthage were always going to end up fighting. Rome had expanded across the Italian peninsula, and with Sardinia and Sicily both controlled by Carthage, the fear at Rome was that they were wide open for an invasion across the several points that they could be invaded from. This is a strategically sound point. Point, but this is Carthage we're talking about. I don't think Carthage was really interested in anything overseas unless it involved trade. The city was, quite literally, built for trade. Carthage had originally been established as a Phoenician colony. Phoenicia was a range of cities on the furthest east coast of the Mediterranean, so sort of all the coastal stuff, Syria, Lebanon and Israel. And we actually got our alphabet from Phoenician traders who passed it on to their Greek counterparts who changed it around a bit. The Phoenicians expanded across the Mediterranean, setting up numerous colonies in northern Africa, Spain, and anywhere there was a good trade route. Here's another piece of trivia. We actually get our word emporium from them as well. Carthage was one such trading post, which grew massively and became a sort of a player, I suppose, in its own right. It was a naval trading superpower, and the ships it used had highly skilled crews, and there were a Phoenician design, which made them quick and very easy to handle. They were possibly the best ships at that time. So I'm not really convinced that Carthage had any machinations on Rome, but as we've seen since the dawn of time, fear of a fight can often lead to exactly that. Thus was born the First Punic War, which started in 264 and ended in 241, and Carthage seems to have been quick off the mark to use elephants, though not the type we have seen thus far. Carthage had access to the North African forest elephant. They are now sadly extinct, but we do know a bit about them. They were smaller than the ones used by Pyrrhus, the Asiatic. This meant they may not have had the option of the tower or the howder on top. There is an argument to say that some of them did. Definitely would have had a driver. This might have been an advantage in other ways, though. Smaller may mean more mobile, and 
not as much upkeep. And they soon saw action. In 261, Hanno arrived in Sicily to relieve the Roman siege of Agrigentum. With him were 50 elephants. And there isn't much detail to the battle except the fact that Hanno lost. Uh, so that's naught from one on terms of Carthage and elephant. Perhaps, though, Carthage was starting to realise that they weren't all that decisive and could be something of a hindrance to the wrong type of battle. A more experienced general, such as a Spartan Xanthippus, beat the Romans at Bagradas in northern Africa in 255. Xanthippus had been hired by Carthage to sort the army out and do that he did. In this scrap, Xanthippus used the elephants against the Roman troops, possibly because there was very little cavalry to ward off. The famed Numidian cavalry did their bit, and of the 15,000 Roman infantry, only 2,000 made it back to the ships and home to Rome. Perhaps there, we've got something a bit different. We've got an experienced general understanding their best use. You didn't have to use them simply because they were there. A final appearance comes in 251, and back on Sicily this time. It was at Panormus. The elephants bit too close to the walls and the light troops with javelins were able to pelt them. Colossal non-surprise they panic and yes you guessed it stampede and trash their own troops. In all honesty elephants don't seem to have featured much in the first Punic War which Carthage lost by the way. Bit of a spoiler there. The main reason for this is that many of the battles were fought at sea and assuming you've been listening you might be asking but how could Carthage have lost given they had such a good navy? Rome had little idea about naval warfare at the beginning of the first Punic War. When they started making ships they used greenwood. That is wood which hasn't been left dead dry out. When the planks started to warp and split at sea disaster ensued. Yet Rome had resources in abundance and it also had a slice of luck. A Carthaginian ship was caught and when the Romans looked at it they noticed lots of markings on the planks. After scratching their heads for a bit they realised these were assembly markings and indicated which plank aligned with which. Think flat plank ready to assemble furniture. Well, Carthage may well have invented it or certainly thought of the idea. So if th- up to this point you've felt a bit sorry for them, you can remind yourself of that the next time you're trying to match hinge A with socket D without the tool thing which probably never came in the packaging in the first place. That's all Carthage's fault, probably. Rome now had a decent ship design to use, but it really still lacked the skill in the use and deployment of the ships. Where Carthage had better trained sailors, these soon whittled down as Rome threw successive fleets into action. Right at the end of the war, it almost ran out of money completely until several rich senators offered to fund the fleet. It was no coincidence these senators happened to own the lands near Sicily, which would become worth far, far more once Sicily was Roman. I think they also got a bit of a deal on any of the treasure and the booty from the war as well, so they did pretty well out of it. I did promise you divine chickens at the beginning of all this, so I'm going to shoehorn the story in a bit. Plus it does tally with the earlier theme about getting the gods on your side in warfare. Picture the scene. A Roman naval force is looking to attack a Carthaginian one, except the chickens aren't playing ball. Normally the man in charge, in this instance a Roman consul, would scatter corn for the chickens who would duly peck at it and this would give the all clear, which you know, makes total sense. But this time they didn't. In a tantrum the consul exclaimed, if they are not hungry they must be thirsty and threw the chickens overboard. The Romans attacked and were obliterated, losing around 90 of their 120 ships. The consul, Publius Claudius Pulcher, was eventually prosecuted for sacrilege and sent to exile. The fate of the chickens, however sad, may seem preferable to the fate of those involved in our next elephant pact incident. After the war, Carthage was in dire straits. The mercenaries which they'd hired started to revolt over non-payment, which was little surprise given Carthage had had to fork out massive sums to Rome as part of the truce they were forced to sign. This led to the revolt and lots of mischief on behalf of the mercenary rebels. A general named Hamilcar, who was Hannibal's dad, was charged with dealing with them, and elephants were to make a large impression, and that's a pun which you'll laugh about in a bit. After a couple of engagements, Hamilcar managed to trap the 40,000 or so of them in a narrow gorge or valley. 
Attacking with elephants, he trampled them into a rebel goo in a manner which would make any Sith Lord proud. And as mentioned, Hamilcar was the father of Hannibal. He's probably the person who you thought I was going to speak about the most, and is famously associated with elephants. And that's not really anyone's fault. Hannibal minted coins with elephants on them, and as you know, traversed the Alps with around 38 of them. If you were to meet Hannibal and mention elephants, he wouldn't do well to roll his one eye at you. The Second Punic War followed the First Punic War, which is generally a good idea. And here, there definitely was a cause to the outbreak of the war, and, as I've just mentioned, his name was Hannibal. Rome had hoped that the war indemnities and seizure of Sicily, their first overseas territory by the way, would relegate Carthage to a backwater, except Carthage was able to recover, though it wasn't really Carthage that caused the issue between itself and Rome. The truce it had been forced to sign meant it had little presence in the central Mediterranean anymore, even less so when Rome kicked Carthage out of Sardinia, for no other reason than, well, it could. Hamilcar, sick of the infighting in Carthage he had witnessed, relocated to southern Spain, and it was here that he was able to establish himself far away from Carthage. The natural resources of Spain, but in particular its mineral wealth, made him almost self-sufficient. With young Hannibal in tow, he soon conquered and assimilated the Iberian tribes into his own army. And these Iberian and Celt-Iberian troops were very, very good soldiers. So soon Hamilcar had amassed a very good army and the funds to keep it. But then he died, which left the army in the hands of Hasdrubal, his son-in-law, who lasted a whole eight years, and then it was Hannibal who took over. And Hannibal had one thing on his mind, avenge his father, who had commanded in Sicily, and really stick it to Rome. In order to do so, he attacked Saguntum, which is a Roman ally in northern Spain. Everyone knows what happened next. Hannibal marches his army over the Alps and into Italy. It's sometimes questioned why he made this almost impossible trek, and the reason for this is he had no alternative. He possessed no real naval support. If he had wanted to make the cross into Rome by sea, he'd need to spend a year or so building ships, which would have been a huge flag to Rome, who possessed a half-decent navy. Even if he had managed to make ships out of nothing, that option would have been folly at best. Lots of ships means disarray in a storm, plus you need somewhere you can land without immediately being attacked. It was simply a no-no. Plus, if you make the trek overland, you can create a supply route by which reinforcements can arrive. Now, elephants aren't known mountaineers. I can think of fewer occupations less suited to an animal which likes hot weather and lots of flat space than working as a tour guide in the Alps. Of the 38 which made the trek, only a few turn up in Italy to face Rome. One of them was Hannibal's favourite, known as the Syrian, which might indicate that it was an Asiatic elephant. In either case, the elephant doesn't play a huge part in Hannibal's war on Rome. The animal du jour was certainly the small horse which the Numidian cavalry used, the cavalry often being used to deliver the coup de grace. Okay, I'll, I'll stop it with the French now. Ironically, it's only right at the end of Hannibal's battles with Rome that the elephant trundles into view. After being worn down and eventually retreating back to Carthage, Hannibal faces off against Scipio, who learnt a great deal from him. In one of those pupil has become the master tropes, Hannibal musters a force at Zama in northern Africa in 202. Where Hannibal had always had the more experienced troops and the superior cavalry, at Zama he has the tables fully turned. He does have some veterans still with him, but his army aren't a real match for Scipio's, which has been touring Spain and clocking up victory after victory. More worrying than the famed Numidian cavalry desert to Rome. The Numidian king realised that there was a power shift in the air, and he sensed a weak Carthage meant he could expand his territories into that of his old neighbour. Now Hannibal fielded elephants, and he led with them, perhaps hoping to crumble the Roman line. They charge, except this time, the Roman line opens, and the elephants run into gaps where missile infantry make very short work of them. After that, the lines clash, and it's only the Numidian cavalry which, this time for Rome, makes the difference. 
You wonder if Hannibal should have kept the elephants back, but the chances are the Numidian cavalry wouldn't have been scared by them, as they were used to elephants. After Hannibal, Rome seems to have started to use the elephants. Scipio's son used them in the Battle of Magnesia in 190, and they were used in the invasion of Greece in the 2nd century BC. Possibly the most famous use post-Hannibal was when Claudius rode one when invading Britain in AD 43. But this podcast was really about how they came into use, and you're probably suffering elephant fatigue. So I'll leave with possibly the most heroic fail involving elephant I could find. The Maccabean Revolt occurred in Judea in the 2nd century BC when the Maccabees rose up against the Seleucid Empire. In 164, the two sides met at the Battle of Beth, Zechariah. When things started going badly for the Maccabees, the commander's younger brother, Eleazar, charged a war elephant which carried the royal Seleucid seal. It's a heroic act, and perhaps too heroic. As he rode under the elephant, he cut into its belly, killing it. As Eleazar was about to find out, the one place you should not be after you've killed a standing elephant is underneath it. And I can think you can work out what happened next. And there, I feel, is where we should leave the elephant. It's a wonderful animal, and one which simply doesn't fit well with any kind of martial ambitions. Using it in such a capacity as a small window for success, but a larger elephant-shaped window for complete calamity, be it a stampede, being too big to sneak through a gate, climb a mountain, or simply falling onto you. And I think the Roman writers had it right. They seem to have understood that this animal far too beautiful, noble, and sensitive a creature to be anywhere near a battlefield. Well, thanks for listening. I have other podcasts, so give them a whirl. Why don't you? You've listened to this one. And you can find me on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, so feel free to come and say hello. And till next time, take care.